episode 181, Pamela Keller, a coach for women in STEM professions. I thought because I could solve it all on my own, that's what also it was expected of me as a leader. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is a place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Pamela and her work, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake181. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. My guest today is Pamela Keller. She helps female professionals in STEM sectors uh, transition to senior management roles by learning strategic, non-technical skills. And I think there are lessons learned uh, for for anybody listening as we get to talk uh, to Pamela later about that. She is a strategic leadership expert. She has more than 16 years of experience working in strategy, business development, and project delivery. She's led uh, diverse teams at leading organizations across uh, many continents, Australia, Asia, Europe, North America. She's managed complex engineering projects. She's had PL responsibility of, of more than $100 million with a team of over 100 employees. So she'll be speaking from experience here. And, and throughout Pamela's career, she's coached professionals in their own leadership journeys. She has an online coaching program to help women accelerate their careers uh, up to and, and through um, senior leadership roles. So you can find Pamela on LinkedIn, look for a link in the show notes, or you can go to her website, womenleadinginstem.com. So uh, with that introduction, Pamela, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to you know have this conversation. Uh, you know, Personally, I'm an engineer. I have tried to become a better leader um, throughout my career. And it, even though you, you work with women, I, I, I'm curious to hear your advice and lessons learned from anybody who's trying to bridge from technical into leadership type roles. That's a big challenge. I guess is a, a high level open-ended question to you. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more later though. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Um, and, and I appreciate it. Although I'm not an engineer, just to speak a bit about my background, I actually studied business administration, but I also went into very technical activities within business administration. Um, for many years, I was um, a strategy analyst where, for example, we geek out on Excel and analysis. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel the love for the technical things, but um, let's start uh, straight into that. Namely, one of the things I want to talk about is uh, namely how I transitioned uh, from a role as individual contributor to a leadership role. And um, and that's where one of my favorite mistakes is. Yeah, uh, I actually have many, but my favorite mistake is the one where I thought when I transitioned to a leadership role, I thought I had to have all answers. Mm. I, I thought that I was being promoted from an individual contributor to a leader because I was good in problem solving. I thought because I could solve it all on my own, that's what also it was expected of me as a leader because I thought that I had to give all of that guidance and solutions to my team. And, and I think that's a very common mistake with others as well. 
particularly when we move from from very technical problem solving um, roles in into leading, because the focus changes then, right? Um, so, what was the issue? Why was that actually a mistake? Looking back, um, by me trying to solve it on my own, I really heavily overworked myself. Yeah? Because I was trying to find all the solutions on my own. I did more research, more analysis, trying to really figure it out on my own. And I think many others do as well. But it actually just creates a very heavy workload and very heavy expectations on ourselves. And it took me quite time, some time to um, to understand that that's not what was the expectation. I don't know if you have also experienced something similar, Mark. Well, I mean, it's a very, you're, I agree with you. It's a very common problem. I see it in different uh, industries, including in healthcare, trying to navigate shifting from individual contributor or technical person to a leadership role. Sometimes organizations don't do a good job of setting clear expectations. Was that, yeah. was that part of your situation? You were promoted to a leadership role. Did they say, hey, Pamela, you're smart, figure it out? That's interesting. I I think actually in my um, case, and I know many others have a very similar case, there was no expectation set. So it was actually an expectation that I had interpreted for myself. And that's maybe even the worst, right? Not to ask directly, what's the expectation of me? How do you want me to work around a a problem or an issue? But just to um, imagine for yourself and interpret for yourself what that was. So it was really my self-interpreted expectation that I had to solve it on my own rather than going about it very differently. So, so that, for, that first problem to solve is figuring out the leadership role. And what, what I hear you saying is you fell back on that habit of, well, I've got to figure it out myself instead of, correct. you know, as a leader, you often ask your team to solve problems. In this case, it sounds like one of the mistakes within the mistake was not asking your direct manager or, or other leaders, how are you expected to operate? Correct. Exactly. That was that was really it. And not receiving the guidance on one hand, not receiving the guidance, but on the other hand, um, also me not asking for it and checking in. Hey, I'm is is this right? Is this the right way to do it and to go about it? Um, so it was really then later on that I realized, okay, if I try to do this on my own, not only can I not really check, am I on the right path, but also I overworked myself. And so it was really through the uh, many heavy nights of work that I realized this can't be the right thing. So the one of the lessons learned really is that it's so much more helpful to integrate the opinion and the solutions of others, right? Ideally, um, gather the collective knowledge of others and understand how can I look at this problem from different perspectives delegate um, sub-elements thereof because others also want to prove they're smart, right? And others want to grow and show that they can solve the problem as well. So I really understood that as a leader, um, it's actually no longer about solving the technical problem, but stepping back and rather integrating the team and the smarts of others. Um, And that step, moving from individual contributor to um, a manager, then was again another step moving into a senior management role because then you go even an additional step further. You really go back more and more from the technical items into a much more strategic role. So let, let's let's maybe let's come back to that lead mm-hmm. that that progression and, and the challenges of the mistakes associated with that. I, I'd like to explore a little bit more, Pamela, about you know that first leadership role or you know trying to figure figure this out. Um, you know, I've, I've I've seen 
and I've tried the coach leaders who have said uh, something to the effect of, you know, if somebody on my team comes up with a solution, that means I've failed as a leader because they feel yeah. like you were experiencing and articulating there that they should have they should have solved it for their team. That that's not how I would define servant leadership. Like to me, servant leadership doesn't mean doing it all for them. Like to me, the feedback I've given to to leaders is that if somebody on your team identifies and solves a problem, that's a positive reflection on you as a leader that you've created an environment where it was safe to speak up. You, as, as you mentioned, you know, gave people the opportunity to learn and grow, grow. And so, you know, Mm. to me, a servant leader isn't doing it for everybody that part of, part of, being of service is to help people grow and, and, and develop. Um, you know, so I was going to ask you, you know, is there an example you can think of where your attempt to solve a problem, you know, didn't work out? Like, I'm curious to learn more beyond the overwork and the recognition mm. of that. How did you recognize this mistake that you were still in that mindset of, well, I'm the leader, I've got to have the answers and solutions. How, yeah. how did you discover that? Um, so for me, I realized that in particular, when I um, moved to Southeast Asia and had to um, develop the strategy for Southeast Asia, and um, obviously I had not grown up there. And so I had to build up quite a lot of knowledge about the region. And that's when I realized I'm, I can be much quicker by integrating all of the knowledge that is already sitting there. Um, so that's, I think, to to what helped me to show um, because I had to identify what's the quickest way to actually get there, right? And I could get there myself, but then it would take years, or I can integrate the knowledge and wisdom that is already sitting there in the team. So that that's one aspect. And coming to the point that you just mentioned, Mark, namely the example of some people struggling, struggle, and I see that um, to delegate, right? Um, and I had just very recently a conversation um, with one of my coaches because she was saying she doesn't feel she can delegate a particular challenge because otherwise others will perceive that she's not capable of doing it or that she may not be able to master it. And so we address that perspective because that's a perspective that's not necessarily helping, right? When you think that um, it's just going to be looked as if you're not able to do it, you'll continuously be able, you, you'll continuously be one of focusing on doing it yourself. So we changed her her perspective by saying, look at delegation as giving someone else an opportunity to grow because you yourself, you want to be managing more complex problems in the future. So then take those that are currently at their level, give it to them, share with others and help them overcome them. That that shift in perspective helped her to see that delegation is actually a sign of very good leadership. Yeah. And again, I would agree with that. And you know, I think there, there's an art of figuring out the balance of, uh, you know, I've, I've already stated my opinion and my belief that servant leadership doesn't mean doing everything for everybody, but yeah. you also can't dump every problem on your team, so to speak. Yeah. So trying to figure out when to delegate, when to let people try and struggle a little bit, yeah. when to provide some coaching, when to let them keep at it, when to intervene, and and, and when maybe then to take something on or to escalate it. It it depends on the type Mm. of problem and type of situation. Would you agree? Yes, Uh, absolutely. And also obviously um, on the individual as well, depending on what's their background, 
also what's their appetite for um, being challenged, right? Not, not everybody wants to be stretched, but some really want to be stretched and, and see how far they can go. Um, so it's always a very individual situation. We we can't apply the same approach to all of the team members. Um, I'm a strong advocate by getting to know the team members really well so that you can, on a very individual basis, decide how much to delegate, how to provide growth opportunities, and in which direction. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I'm glad you you raised that point of recognizing not everybody is the same. Not everybody has the same motivations. They don't, uh, you know, it's often I've, I've seen when trying to help people get involved in problem solving, they, they may, they, they may lack confidence. You know, yeah. they, they may think they lack capabilities, yeah. but really it might be a matter of, of, of confidence. And, you know, I think of people who have been influential to me, they emphasize the primary role of the leader as being one of people development. And we can develop people and help them grow by solving problems. And that means sometimes they're going to make, quote unquote, mistakes. You know, they're going to try something that doesn't work. And as we always talk about here in this episode, you know, we want to show grace and remember that we learn from mistakes. So I'm I'm, I'm curious to bounce it back to you. Like, how how do you coach a leader through the situation where they're uh, maybe they're afraid to let their people make mistakes because it might be bad for the organization or it might somehow hurt their confidence if they make a mistake when they're trying to solve a problem? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I think we really start first by trying to unpack where's the concern coming from, right? Um, because as you said, sometimes um, we, we talk about the symptom, but the issue is actually somewhere else. So we talk through um, what is it at stake for them? Is it um, a concern about what are others going to think about them? Or is it really a a self-belief about themselves and and a self-imposed expectation of what they should be doing? Or is it maybe really a real conversation that might have happened with their manager about unrealistic expectations that might have been set? So we actually really need to unpack all of these elements to try to understand where's a self-limiting belief coming from and then correct that, which we do by just, it's very often just a, a little shift in, in a perspective like the one that I just mentioned, namely delegation is an opportunity to let others grow. And and once we just have that shift, then we can start implementing it. And it's fairly quick to then implement it because like I mentioned, it's often just one shift that needs to happen. And, you know, Pamela, I want to come back to then uh, this idea of, you know, not just shifting from individual contributor to leadership, but as as you brought up earlier, then the shift from being a frontline leader to maybe growing into middle management to growing into the executive ranks. What, how were those challenges different? Did, did you experience or do you see other common mistakes of, someone who's successful in their first leadership role mm-hmm. then they they try to move up yeah um so as you move further further up it always becomes much less about the individual task it becomes much more about becoming strategic in terms of how does the work that me and my team are working fit to the overall perspective of the organization? How do we actually contribute to the overall strategic direction? And how do we help the organization to um, gain an advantage, whether it's a competitive advantage or a financial advantage? Because as senior leaders, we're now really responsible for, for budget, for achieving results, but also for taking our stakeholders along the journey, right? 
So while you might have your um, mid-management team um, focusing on, on getting results and a portfolio of results, as a senior manager, you need to now um, really lift yourself to a different level of becoming much more strategic and having a think about how does the work that my team is doing fit in with the work that other teams are doing and how do we leverage the strategic advantage of all of that? And that requires um, a bit of different work. It's uh, like I said earlier, it's much less technical work. It's a lot about relationships because now you need to spend some more time with the people who may be impacted by your work or who may impact decisions on your work. So it requires developing a network with now people outside of your function or division. Um, also developing much closer relationships, depending where you work, either with the clients or with suppliers, maybe also with competitors to um, see where there is uh, cooperation, um, or also maybe with um, with uh, other institutions outside the organization, like association. Because on a senior management level, you might now also want to grow beyond and start to influence where the direction of the total industry is going. Right. It's no longer about what your team alone is doing. You now really need to think in in bigger terms. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, and you know, I, I would agree, is you know, as as leaders move up the organization, hopefully they have a broader view. And I, you know, I yeah. think part of the role of a, a senior leader is to help make sure we're not sub-optimizing the organization. That if a leader, yeah. one part of the organization says, we we think we should do this, we think it would be better, and you realize, well, it might be better for your silo, but it's yeah. going to cost the organization as a whole in some other way, that, that, that leaders help people navigate situations like that, right? Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And I think once we start stepping outside of our silo of our division or function, then we suddenly see, okay, um, you know, together with another division, we could together collaborate much more and jointly achieve significantly bigger outcomes or quicker outcomes if we were to work together. So we step out from the technical task to now suddenly focusing much more on building relationships. And that can become quite challenging because we didn't necessarily need that in the past. We might now even need to uh, build relationships that with people maybe we don't like or people who don't want to work with us, you know. So we actually shift that focus of how we work around things. Yeah, yeah. Working, working with people who are different, which could mean different functions, different experiences, different educations, learning to navigate yeah. that. Um you know, I think one one thing, you know, I've worked in manufacturing, I've worked in healthcare. To me, one thing that's interesting from a career growth standpoint, manufacturing companies have opportunities to to rotate people through different functions as you were yeah. touching on, right? So somebody who comes from a manufacturing background might then end up in a finance leadership role or you know, information technology mm-hmm. leadership role where even if you wanted to rely on being the expert, you you can't. You yeah. know, and, and in healthcare, the silos, the professional silos are so strong. I'll, I'll just share one example, and I'd love to hear your mm-hmm. thoughts about different industries you've been in. So, a nurse gets promoted to nurse manager. They would be mm-hmm. very tempted because they've recently been in an individual contributor role. They might feel mm-hmm. pressure to solve things as you described, or they might actually be able to. And healthcare leaders move very high up within their silo, and then suddenly, boom, they might have very broad responsibility. Mm-hmm. But you know, the one example I was going to share with you is one of the most effective laboratory directors I ever worked with was a nurse. 
Mm-hmm. She had been a director of nursing and out of just sheer necessity, they put her into this laboratory role. And I remember her reflecting on this saying, she didn't know the work. She couldn't tell people yeah. what to do. It really forced her to develop. And, and she was um, a very effective leader. So I, I'd be curious to hear if you have an example or how you coach somebody, you know, kind of navigating. Is, is it a helpful opportunity to realize, hey, I, I can't solve all the problems? Yeah. And I absolutely, and I think that's really what I want to talk about in, in this um, episode. Namely, my mistake was that I had to realize I can't solve all the problems on my own, or or maybe I can, but then I'm really not necessarily maybe finding the best solution because I'm just trying to um, uh, navigate and find it on my own, or it takes really particularly long time. My experience has really been that we can actually grow in various new fields if we embrace the collective knowledge of others. Um, and maybe um, the uh, path, professional path that I've taken is also an interesting one because, um, as I mentioned, I'm not an engineer by trade. I have studied business administration, but I moved on in my experience to becoming a, um, a project manager and I have led engineering projects. So my way of working around that was to work even closer with the technical experts who knew exactly um, their fields. And with technical, I not only mean the engineers, but also, for example, lawyers, commercial finance experts who in their field are the subject matter experts. So what has helped me is to work around what's my best way of working with um, technical SMEs in their field. And that would be obviously by inviting a lot of knowledge challenging maybe some assumptions and asking the questions that maybe they're not used to. And thereby, I gained the knowledge, but also brought in their expertise. Yeah. So uh, again, our guest to recap a little bit is uh, Pamela Kellert. Her website is womenleadinginstem.com. You know, stepping back and, and looking at these challenges a little bit more broadly, um, what, what, what are the particular challenges for, for women in STEM careers, science, technology, engineering, math. How, what are, are, are there different challenges? What, what are you coaching women on related to this? Yep. Yes, there are a couple of different challenges and, and the majority of them actually come from women being underrepresented. Uh, when you start working, particularly as a young woman in the STEM sector, in, in any of those, um, you won't necessarily find role models and in particular in higher senior roles. So you start early on questioning, is there actually a career path for me? Yeah. And, and so it starts impacting the confidence level, particularly if you go into um, a room where you are maybe the only woman in the room and your ideas never come to fruition. So then you start questioning, am I actually capable of doing this job? Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing that where we have also seen quite a lot of studies already resulting in is that women at workplace tend to uh, work, in particular when they're in higher senior roles, they tend to network vertically, which means that they tend to collaborate much more either within their team or with other, uh, quite often women in uh, more junior roles versus men tend to network horizontally, which means they leverage the capability and experience of their peers. And therefore, they get to learn much more from their peers and also bounce off ideas on a much more strategic level. So when I work with women, I make them conscious about 
this difference in how we women work versus how men work. Because um, once they can open up to also network more on a senior level, that's what they get to exchange and learn more on that strategic level. So how important would you say it is for a woman to have a female mentor? And when, when you talk about you know, these, these general differences, is it important to also have a male mentor? Is it ideal maybe to have two, more than two mentors? I don't know. 100% take anyone. <laughs> yeah. I would always recommend to have various mentors and also various mentors across your career. Why? Because every mentor will have a different experience to share, right? There's not one mentor who is going to give you all the wisdom that you need. Um, from some mentors, you might gain more experience about your, your technical field. Other mentors might be able to show you um, what the relationships are that are going to be critical for you and might be able to introduce you to others. Um, and some others might help you to be a bit more self-reflecting and to learn more about yourself. So I would always recommend to have several mentors. Now you ask the question, is there a difference whether we have a male or female mentor? And, and yes, there is. So I would definitely recommend also to bring in um, male and female mentors in. I also still have male and female mentors and I have learned various different things from both of them. What is it that's particularly different about a female mentor? Well, there are challenges that are very specific to women. For example, and again, research shows this, women are still expected to behave in a certain way. When we see a woman, particularly in management, behaving in a very aggressive way, we tend to penalize that behavior because we expect of women to be more communal and to be more nurturing. So therefore, if I have a only male mentors who tell me to be aggressive, to be assertive, and to behave in that way, it's actually potentially counterproductive to how I want to work with others. And that's why it's really important that we gain both perspectives and then try to identify what's a way and a leadership style that's actually authentic to myself, because then we combine it with what are my values, what do I stand for, and how do I want to be, how do I want to show up as a leader? Yeah, I mean, it seems to raise some really tough challenges of um, trying to, you know, think of the perspective of a woman who would be penalized for certain behaviors that I might be able to get away with um, as a as a as a man. And we could say, well, people shouldn't treat you differently. Like, how how do you navigate the balance between sort of trying to help influence how people are reacting versus helping a woman change? their behavior to sort of to, to, to be able to go along um, with yeah. that current environment. I mean, that's, that, that seems like that's really challenging uh, what should be versus what is. I know. And uh, just to give you a very current example, not in business world, but in politics, you might have uh, seen the, um, the big media attention on the Finnish prime minister and her partying yeah. and having such a big backlash Versus a week later, the Australian Prime Minister was also filmed in a setting where um, he was encouraged to drink um, and finish a drink in one go, and he was celebrated for it. So un unfortunately, as a society, so this is not only STEM, really, as a wider society, we still have different expectations towards how women should show up and how men should show up. And um, now coming to your question, what do we do with this um, as women in, in leadership roles? I think we simply need to be mindful of it. 
I'm not saying we need to completely change the way we work, but we just need to be mindful about it. Um, I'll give you one example of um, how I walk through um, the women that I work with. Let's talk about making decisions. So one advice that a lot of uh, male mentors has always given me is, Pamela, you need to be assertive with your decisions. It's nearly like as you have to bang with your hand on, um, on the table, but you actually don't have to. So when we communicate a decision, there are actually two aspects that we can separate. One is the message. For example, a decision, no, I don't have budget for that. And the other aspect is how we communicate it. So we can be assertive in the content of the message. I don't have budget for that. But we can still be friendly and not necessarily aggressive in the way how we deliver that message. So that's one way how we can, you know, still be um, very confident in the content that we um, communicate, but uh, try to stay true to our form. So my form, I'm not an aggressive leader. I'm a collaborative leader and mm -hmm. I can express my decisions also in a collaborative and respectful way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on one other example of it again. Well, as much as we can generalize the difference in yeah. how men might say something and how women might say something again, very generally one, one thing I've read about, and then like, once you're aware of it, you maybe start observing it. Um, the tent again, general tendency for, uh, a woman to be more likely to apologize in advance of saying something or to use other diminishing language. I mean, I, I remember once um, trying to coach uh, a female colleague who had a habit of, she would have great things to say, but she would preface it with things like, well, this, I don't know, this might be a dumb idea or but, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, don't, don't plant that idea. It's not for one, it's probably yeah. not a dumb idea, but yeah. you know, and, 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 and that does seem to be, a bit of a, a gender generalization. So here I am apologizing for throwing that out there, but what, I'm, I'm yeah. curious to hear your thoughts or observations on that. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I think you're not wrong with that. And again, we're talking about generalizations, but um, indeed, again, coming to societal expectations, there is somehow the trait, this is how we have been raised, many of us. We have been raised not to invade other people's fears. We have been raised not to be allowed um, studies have shown that we have even been raised not to um, be proud about our own achievements and talk about it. That's why um, self-promotion is still an issue for, for women. Uh, again, generalizing on a level, um, some are, will have already overcome that. But it is true, and that is one aspect in my coaching program, that we have a look at what is the language that we actually use. And it's two aspects of language. One, let's talk about the verbal language. Because you're absolutely right, sometimes without even noticing, we use combinations of words that diminish what we say. Like you said, we might preface by saying, yeah, um, I'm not sure if this is right, but, or we may add just the word just, uh, I just had a question, <laughs> or I was just wondering, or we end a sentence by saying, um, does it make sense? Mm -hmm. So we're always adding a question mark. And it's not always because we actually doubt ourselves, but it's just become, it has become our use of language. So the first step is to become aware, why do we actually use that? And when we realize we're using those sentences, which actually don't add any value, to start shifting towards taking those sentences and those extra words out because they don't serve us and we actually really don't need them. Right. So that's for... Um, 
or uh, verbal language. And the same is true for nonverbal signs. And uh, I was just uh, looking yesterday at a post on LinkedIn where a lady was in a photo shoot and she started sitting in the photo shoot just the way she has always been taught, namely, you know, put your hand on one on another, put them on your knees and cross your ankles. And then she realized this is actually the way we women minimize our uh, body exposure right. versus mm -hmm. if you compare to the to the the male posture, the male posture often mm -hmm. goes up and up, you know, yeah. takes up space. And the message that you communicate when you take up space is, I'm not scared. Mm -hmm. I'm not scared of showing up. I know who I am. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my message. But when we go, when we make ourselves smaller, even just with the frame that we show up with, it already plants the seed that this person may not be uh, secure of themselves or may not be, um, you know, have a strong voice about what they would like to say. So in my program, what we go through is a lot of self-awareness, you know, mm -hmm. realizing what are the messages that we're sending out unconsciously very often and then correcting that. So I think that's that's really insightful, and and you know, and asking people to reflect and think about their their actions, their behaviors. That seems like a really effective approach. Uh, maybe you know, one other question, Pamela. You mentioned uh, the 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 Finnish Prime Minister. I am blanking out on on her name. I don't know the name of the Australian Prime Minister either. Very American of me, but. Um, I do remember seeing um, at least a photo and, and some headlines. And is it fair to say, I mean, the Finnish prime minister was, she was dancing, she was wearing a tank top. Like there weren't really allegations of, like you said, chugging a beverage or anything really untoward, right? I mean, it seems like it's just sort of some people blew it up because they wanted to make her look bad. Is that fair to say? Um, I think I think it's fair to say. Look, I'm, I'm sure there's also um, obviously com politics coming into play, mm -hmm. but uh, look, if if we're wondering about what someone's wearing, I mean, we have seen um, Vladimir Putin, you know, topless on plenty of pictures, and there was never a pack <laughs> yes. backlash on that. Right. <laughs> so I do think that we hold different standards for um, for men and women. And you know, I did see a little bit of online discussion, and I cringed. Um, you know, older white male was, you know, criticizing her and said something about, oh, well, we're not questioning her actions. It it raises questions of her maturity. I'm like, well, she's in her 30s. And whether you're in your 30s or your 40s or like you're not you're not allowed to have fun. Like th this, yeah. the same guy probably wasn't criticizing Boris Johnson for all of the different <laughs> Partying. I was behavior. just about to mention him. He's the prime example, right? I mean, he's yeah. definitely not mature for his actions and sending yeah. his whole country into lockdown while uh, partying himself. So right. I, I think that's just a prime example. And uh, well, he has lost his um, his political <laughs> position, but it took right. a really long time um, to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what, what this whole debate is and what I also encourage is I do encourage a conversation about that because it's not about being right or wrong. It's just about being a little bit more aware that um, of the biases we still have as a, as a society. Mm -hmm. And it's not only bias that comes from men, but also we women as well, we still have biases. Mm -hmm. It's just because as a society, we have raced with a certain, um, certain expectations, with certain pictures in the media. Mm -hmm. And that obviously takes time until, um, until we replace that with maybe a new reality um, that, uh, that is coming up. 
And, and, and this is not a good wrap-up question, and this is pretty heavy, but what you're describing, Pamela, um, of what people are conditioned to and how people are raised in society makes me think of a phrase that, that gets used a lot now, of uh, you know, systemic racism. It sounds like there mm-hmm. might also be a parallel to what you might call systemic sexism, but I, I don't really, I don't hear that phrase often, do you? Actually, that's a very good question, Mark. Um, I wouldn't have, I've not heard that term very often, uh, but it, that is really essentially what it is, right? That we have um, different expectations to the role of women and men in society. For example, one topic that I think is not sufficiently talked about yet is um, care work, um, namely caring for either children or elderly um, family members, which um, quite often, and, and again, there's plenty of statistics, is still done by women. So if you're a woman and you need to take care of family, whether young or old, um, and you're still trying to be ambitious at work and at least have a full-time role, that just becomes a real challenge purely time-wise to manage that, but also in terms of energy and obviously having the focus as well. So as a society, if we actually want to truly have equal participation in organizations of men and women, we also have to address how care work is going to be either distributed or how across um, the society we also build up the facilities where, you know, outsourced or supported care work can uh, can provide that support. Yeah. So, well, uh, Pamela, again, our, our guest has been Pamela Kellert. Um, thank you for sharing, you know, your story and your reflections. You know, like, like you know, I think you said, or at least alluded to, some executives don't figure this out the way you did. They might continue making those same mistakes through their rise through different organizations and that that may catch up with them uh, at some point. So I appreciate your perspectives, not just about your own career, but what you do to work with women and as and, uh, you know, they're moving through their leadership ranks. So uh, again, Pamela's website for, for, for one, you can find her on LinkedIn and then you can also go to women, womenleadinginstem.com. I hate to end with a, a mistake. I, I don't know why I stumbled over the word women, but Pamela, thank you for uh, bearing with my questions, whether they had mistakes in them or not. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure to be here. Well, again, to learn more about Pamela and her work, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 181. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.